0: Welcome to The Well-Nurtured Brain, where we delve into the exciting world of brain health. Every episode, we bring the latest research and expert insights on mental and neurological health, and offer practical tips and strategies on how to nurture your brain and optimize its function. From mental wellness to neurological health, we'll cover it all so you can become skilled in the care and feeding of the most important organ in your body, the one that makes you you, your brain. Welcome to Episode 7 of the Well-Nurtured Brain. I'm your host, Dr. Pamela Hutchison, naturopathic doctor with over 20 years of clinical practice supporting folks with mental health and neurological challenges live healthy lives. I'm so excited that you're here and that I'm here and we're talking about brain health, which is my favorite topic. So thank you again for showing up and lending me your ears and your brains a little fun factoid, last weekend, the well Nurtured brain actually hit number 11 on Apple podcast charts for medicine in Canada, which was pretty thrilling for me. And I just want to thank you all for that because that's obviously you tuning in and I'm thrilled and it makes me want to do an even better job. And today is a big one. Today I'm writing off a big topic that we really won't get fully through in one episode, let alone probably 20. We're talking today about the effects of loneliness and social isolation, which are two social determinants of health. We're talking about these two and how it might be wise for medical practitioners, especially primary care practitioners to begin looking at how they can be prescribing and supporting their patients, particularly patients with mental health challenges, patients with neurological challenges, supporting these patients in getting more socially connected and feeling less lonely in their lives. And there's lots of good health outcome reasons for why we're going to talk about this today. But before we go into loneliness and social isolation, which sounds really dark. I want to tell you a couple stories that illustrate the importance of this topic. One is personal to me that really highlighted to me how important social understanding social connections is as a clinician, and one is something that we've all experienced recently. You can probably imagine what that is. First, back in 1995, I had the incredible fortune of being an exchange student And I went to the beautiful and absolutely warm and welcoming country of Zimbabwe in southern Africa. And I spent a good chunk of time there. I was a exchange student, as I mentioned, at the University of Zimbabwe, but somehow I managed through dumb luck to insert myself into some ongoing research that was being done by some Americans on the local healers in the area. These are traditional healers in Zimbabwe. They're very culturally important. And in Shona, the language of the area I was in, they're called Nangas. This afforded me an opportunity to participate in interviews, listen to recordings of interviews, and travel around both the city of Harare and the rural community surrounding the city and meet these folks. I then took that information back with me to the University of Guelph, and I wrote an undergraduate paper and an annotated bibliography on the resources that I managed to bring back from Zimbabwe, looking at how these healers create confidence in the community around them. And that's largely through how they became healers, what we called at the time their qualification myths. The healers were fascinating. They were definitely the center point of their communities. They had a lot of ritual And, as I mentioned before, myths around them that strengthened their bonds to their community. And a Westerner walking into this, some of the things that you would see would seem quite unreal, particularly the shamanistic approaches to care. We might be appreciating them a bit more now than we used to, but at the time when I was there in 1995, it didn't make sense to me. But for some reason, I didn't dismiss the whole thing, and I saw some great value in what these folks were doing. They were using herbal medicines. Some of those seemed to make sense. But also, they had some incredible benefits to their community at large because they considered the community health as part of the health of the individual. I saw folks being maritally counseled. I saw folks being advised on what to do about their neighbor. They were mediating disputes. They were helping their community stay healthy. They were really the center points of their community. In a dark page of history, when I was there, I learned that the Rhodesian army, when they were trying to gain control of the African population, would go into these rural communities knowing that the Nungas were the center point of the community, and they would target them specifically in order to try to drop the morale and disenfranchise the communities that they were trying to gain power over. Like many things from my time in Zimbabwe, the healers really stuck with me, not just because of what I was seeing them do, but because of this culture of community. The center point of the community might be the nunga in especially in the rural communities, but also just Zimbabwean society in general had a high value on community and connectedness. And it created such a beautiful richness in the community that I fell in love with when I was there. And I miss to this day, if I'm completely honest, I wish there was a bit more Africa in Canada. I saw this then and I see this today as an illustration in real life of how even in less developed systems of healthcare. There is this awareness of the social determinants of health. The second example that I want you to think about is the one we just lived through. Starting back in March 2020, we all had to isolate. We had to stay home. We had to stay two meters away from other people when we went outside. And if you recall, that was really difficult. That was a hard experience to go through. We all became isolated. We all became socially isolated. And... By doing so, we provided researchers with an opportunity to look and see, well, what happens to humans when humans are forced to isolate? I remember personally being really stressed by the lack of sound in the clinic. I was used to a busy clinic where there was a lot of footsteps in the hallway. There was lots of interaction between me and front-end staff and other clinicians, and work was really social. As a naturopathic physician, I see people in my office. We're in the same room. We're discussing really intimate details of that person's life. It's a very meaningful way to be in the work world. I'm very grateful for what I get to do every day, and what happened was suddenly we were in a silent clinic where I was seeing people on video, which was better than the the original. The first step was just by phone, which was very odd. But then even just by video, there was a distance. There was still a gap between what you would get in an in-person visit and what you got in a telemedicine visit in terms of at least social exposure with that other human being. In fact, I remember really distinctly the first in-person patient I had in the pandemic was an extraordinary experience because A, it was just really rich and I was so grateful to have this person in front of me. I could see that there was a lot of information that I was missing out in their telemedicine visits. But B, my physical body was giving me this tremendous feedback that this was, I guess, a really wonderful and exciting thing because for the entire visit, the hair in my arms was standing up. So I was so surprised by this that I actually, I told the patient at the end of the visit that they were the first patient that I'd had in the pandemic and that my hair and my, my arms had been standing up this whole time. And hopefully they found that funny and not weird. To me, it underlined for, at least for myself, how I really react strongly to the rich experience of being in the same room with a patient. Needless to say, There were a lot of people concerned that we were going to have a second pandemic, a mental health pandemic, as a response to the social isolation that was our solution to the the initial pandemic. Their concern was there for a very good reason. We had lots of data leading up to the pandemic that social isolation and loneliness was not a good thing for human beings and that it increased our risk for things like early mortality, depression, anxiety heart disease, substance abuse, and many other things. Stats Canada in mid-2021 did a survey of Canadians and found that of their respondents, 40% endorsed feeling lonely, some or all of the time. And it was particularly worse in people who are single and people who are living solo. In February 2021, Harvard's Making Caring Common Project published a report called Loneliness in America, and their preliminary data indicated that 36% of all Americans endorsed feeling serious loneliness. This included 61% of young adults and 51% of mothers with young children. We're social beings. We have social needs. And it just stands to reason that if we don't get those social needs met, we suffer. In 2010, a researcher by the last name Holt Lundstedt published a often cited meta-analysis that made one conclusion of many, but one conclusion that social isolation is worse for your health than smoking 15 cigarettes per day. There's been other indicators that it might be worse than the cumulative health effects of obesity, if you're socially isolated or feel lonely. Now, if we look at loneliness and its effects on specific neurological conditions, there are multiple studies that have shown that people with Alzheimer's dementia who endorse being lonely or who are measurably socially isolated, they progress faster, meaning that they accumulate greater and greater cognitive impairment than those who are not experiencing that social isolation or who do not feel lonely. In the pandemic in October 2020, Dr. Superman, Fernick and uh, Mishli, these are Parkinson's disease researchers and clinicians, they published a paper in Nature's Parkinson's Disease Journal on their findings from early in COVID-19 pandemic, looking at the outcomes of the social determinants of health on people with Parkinson's and their symptoms, and what they found was a little alarming. Their findings showed that individuals with Parkinson's disease who reported being lonely were experiencing a 55% greater symptom severity than those who did not endorse that they were lonely. If the people with Parkinson's disease endorsed that they had a lot of friends, this correlated with 21% fewer symptoms or less symptom severity than those who endorsed that they had few or no friends. And this was done during the pandemic, and it certainly was one of a few studies that raised the alarms that we might be seeing a progression in Parkinson's disease severity in the patients that had it, and maybe we could say with people who were pre-diagnosis, just simply because loneliness and social isolation might be a risk factor for developing more severe symptoms in Parkinson's disease. Not a good thing, right? Dr. Mishley, one of the authors in that study, she has a CamCare PD cohort that she's been working with for a long time now, at least since 2016, possibly earlier. And one of the things that she has found, and this is before the pandemic she was finding this, that the biggest risk factor for faster progression in her PD cohort was people answering yes to the question, I am lonely. Well, endorsing yes, that they would say yes to I am lonely. It's a pretty big effect size that she's finding. So on a scale where the average progression rate is approximately 38 points on this specific scale per year, the folks who endorsed that they were lonely were scoring an additional 300 And 23 points higher. The higher you score on this pro PD scale that she uses, the more severe your PD symptoms are. I think as a result of these findings, Dr. Mishley started to consider social exposure for feeling socially engaged as actually being a nutrient for the brain. If you think of what a nutrient is, it's something that we cannot produce ourselves in our own body, that we need to get it from the outside world. And we usually think of nutrients in terms of food as things that we can't produce for ourselves, like things that provide us calories or vitamins or minerals. But what she's saying is that we need to shift our thinking around nutrition to include some other things. And one of those other things is social exposure or feeling socially connected. It's clear that when people are not in good social connections, that they feel lonely And that when they feel lonely, they do worse with their neurological condition. And when you look at the data out there that we have around loneliness and loneliness research, we'd say that it's not just a nutrient for the brain, it's a nutrient for the whole body. Because if you're lonely, you have higher risks of all-cause mortality. You have higher risks of heart disease. You have higher risks of immunological deficiencies. So It's not just affecting one thing. It's affecting the brain, but it's also affecting the whole body. Perhaps a great way to think about it is that it's an essential nutrient for our body and our mind. So you might say there's a cause and effect question here. And I would say that you are correct. We don't know, when you look at this data, whether the people are declaring that they are lonely because loneliness is a consequence of their illness, or if it's the reverse and loneliness is causing a worsening of their illness or loneliness is a precipitating factor for their illness. After a lot of thought, I would say that this is one of those situations where we have a bi-directional burden. And what I mean by that is it isn't necessarily one or the other, that it can be both or both and. So we know socialization is a risk factor for faster progression in Parkinson's or a risk factor for developing depression. And we also know that folks with these disorders tend to self-isolate. And we also know that if they self-isolate, they make things worse for themselves. So if we are, again, thinking of social exposure or not feeling lonely, feeling connected as a nutrient for the brain, we know that we need that exposure. So whether or not we're measuring the cause or the effect of something becomes kind of irrelevant. We're probably measuring both. We're probably measuring both and. So it's more like it's the chicken, it's the egg, and it's everything in between. Clinically, what we care about is how do we help people live their best lives, have the highest quality of life, slow the progression of their illness, using tools that we have available to us right now. Social exposure is a tool. And, you know, it's one that in North America we don't use really well. And it's something that is used really well in other cultures, such as the Zimbabwean example I made earlier. And I'd also say it's not a problem just for the GP or the naturopathic physician or the nurse practitioner to figure out. This is a social problem beyond just one individual physician remembering to you know, write a prescription for social exposure. Remarkably, in the UK, they have, and I'm totally serious here, they have a minister for loneliness, someone who is in charge at a national level with trying to figure out the loneliness crisis and how to address it in the United Kingdom. Another thing we know about loneliness is that it has a self-reinforcing quality to it. The more that someone is socially isolated, they tend to continue or reinforce that for themselves. Because a person who is experiencing loneliness will interpret the world as less friendly around them. We really want to interrupt this because as you can imagine how this becomes a self-reinforcing downward spiral. So identifying those patients when we can is, again, important even just for interrupting the pattern. When we identify loneliness and try to address it in a patient, we are doing something kind of significant in society. We are aligning ourselves with a cultural shift that is something pretty profound when you think about it. In North America, we need to really shift away from medicalizing social needs. That's a huge topic. There are lots of really brilliant people who discuss this and who research this. A very tiny example of that might be if someone is lonely and they come to see their primary care provider And the primary care provider provides them with a medication to treat depression. Now, I don't actually think that's necessarily the wrong thing to do because it may alleviate this person's suffering and help them take some steps to reach out to friends and family. And it may reduce the severity of some of their negative interpretations of social situations. Because antidepressants can help folks with that. They're like a ladder up sometimes out of some of the self-reinforcing qualities of depression itself. What if, in addition to that prescription, the clinician made a loneliness assessment and connected that patient to some type of community resource that was meaningful to them and that they were able to engage more socially and have more rewarding experiences in the community and alleviate some of the loneliness they're experiencing. So if we're meeting their needs, in addition to the antidepressant, we can be addressing the underlying and important contributing factors to their situation. That's the beauty of social prescribing. We're looking more at the root cause of something, in this case the degrading effects of loneliness, and we're trying to address it head on. As practitioners, we know that the first step when you're trying to address a problem is we need to identify that problem. And in order to assess loneliness, we really need to get clear on what it is. If you're defining loneliness specifically in not in opposition to but instead of social isolation, which is a bit different, loneliness is by definition a distressing feeling. And it's associated with a discrepancy between the person's desired Versus their actual levels of social relations. And that's important because it really is calibrated to the individual. And so when we're assessing loneliness, it means that we need to ask questions when we're trying to assess for this. We need to understand a bit about who they are and get them talking about how they feel about things. And if they feel lonely. By comparison, social isolation is more of a measurable concept. So social isolation is about discrete events in a person's life that would be considered social exposures and a measurement of that and a reflection about whether or not that person is indeed isolated or maybe not. But loneliness is really how they feel about that. And that's the important piece to understand, at least clinically to understand, We can take an inventory of that person's social exposures and measure it and get all of this glorious information about where and who they see and what size their family is and et cetera. But the data is showing that what really matters is whether or not they feel lonely. And so a person with a big family and a lot of family engagement could still feel lonely. Or a person that has next to no social exposures might be very happy and not feel lonely at all. Loneliness, according to the evolutionary theory of loneliness, is a signal that is coming to the person from their body, from their mind that has evolutionarily been programmed into us as social beings That indicates to us that there is a low likelihood of encountering social behaviors that would be considered of mutual benefit or altruism. The process here is that the individual is evaluating their environment, their social environment, and deciding whether or not, if they needed help, that they would actually get the assistance that they need. Loneliness, according to this theory, is an evolutionary signal for survival, not dissimilar to pain. It's uncomfortable, and it gets us to do something. Hopefully, it gets us to do something that involves seeking social support. People that research the evolutionary theory of loneliness and write about it talk about some of the add-on or knock-on problems that being lonely has for people who are lonely one of the things that they develop is an increased threat perception, particularly social threat perception. So they begin to have a more negative viewpoint of social interactions, which reinforces that maybe they're not welcome in a social environment. And they tend to have a more negative perception of others, period. And the kicker is that efficacy of a social support is dependent on not the quality or the quantity of the social support itself, but what really indicates or what really predicts that the social support is going to be effective for someone is how they perceive that social support, how they perceive it personally as either supportive to them or not. Another way to think about that is that Their perception of the social support is more important than the amount of social support they receive. I'll say that one more time. Their perception of the social support is more important than the amount of social support they receive. How does that matter for clinicians or how does that matter as as a family member of someone that's lonely or that has a mental health or neurological problem and they're experiencing loneliness Well, I think how this matters is that we want to assess if that person is lonely. We want to link them to supports. But then we also want to follow up with them. We want to follow up with them to see how did that go? How are you feeling now? What could be better? What could be different? Maybe we need to try something else. So as part of the best practices in social prescribing would be this follow-up and really seeing the patient, hearing their needs, checking in on whether or not those needs are being met. The cold note version of the best practices parts of this is that you want to take a three-step process. The three-step process is signified by three letters, A-L-F. A stands for assessment, L stands for link, And F stands for the follow-up, that all-important piece that I was just talking about. When we assess, we assess not just whether or not that person feels lonely, but we assess for their identity, their sexual identity, their gender identity, their cultural identity, their religious identity, their lived experience, so that we can more skillfully connect them to resources that are more likely to, to jive for them, that are more likely to be meaningful for them so that we start to leverage the efficacy of that perceived benefit that we want them to experience. We want them to experience a benefit that truly changes their loneliness, not that we can just check off and say, yes, you have, check, you went to church, check, you You went to the coffee shop and you said hi to the barista. We don't want to prescribe that way. We want to prescribe from the perspective of who are you? What would be rewarding for you? In step two, the L, we're linking. This is where I think a lot of people get challenged. We can assess and we can follow up, but how on earth do we link? Yes, there are social workers in this world for a reason. And if that patient has access to one, Great. That could be a way that they may not realize that they need to leverage the support of their social worker or their care support worker more than what they are already. In Canada, we do have an amazing resource. It's called 211. If you want to get to the website, it's www.211.ca. And this is a brilliant resource available across Canada by the United Way. And essentially, it's a resource. For the community, not just for clinicians, it is a free and confidential service that can be accessed 24 hours a day. On their website, they say that they have this service offered in more than 150 languages. And you can reach them by phone, you can chat, you can text, and you can also look on the web for the resources that they have listed there. This is something that people out in the community, loved ones, or even If you yourself are experiencing loneliness, you can look at 211 and look to see what kind of resources are local to your community. Listeners outside of Canada, I would recommend going to your local health authority and seeing what resources might be available for you in your country or in your community. And then following up, we want to make sure that there's a fit. Just like if you were referring to a counselor. When I'm referring to counselors, I usually give two or three names of people. I'll ask about gender. Do you have a gender preference? And then after they see them, I always follow up and say, how did that go? Was there a fit? And clinicians out there that are psychologists are all out there saying, yes, the fit is the most important thing. Because if there isn't a fit, there's not going to be a therapeutic relationship that works that's rewarding. That same with social prescribing. With social prescribing, we do need to follow up and see if that person is actually getting the benefit that we want to see. And if they're not, reassess, relink, and re-follow up. It's a big ask, though. If I'm a GP out there, I'm not, but if I was a GP out there in the community and someone was saying to me, this is what you need to do to socially prescribe and I have seven minutes with that patient, I would say that's a pretty big ask. If we look at this whole thing as a larger issue for society, this is one of the reasons we need to look at this as a societal issue. How does the burden fall to someone who only has seven minutes with a patient? It shouldn't, and it really can't. We need to figure out the larger social issues of loneliness and isolation beyond what happens inside of a medical consultation, for sure. But this is one of these opportunities we have to make a really big difference in someone's life. So here are some tools that I am gathering, and I'm going to keep gathering more tools. Maybe I'll revisit this in a future podcast, an update on social prescribing. But here are some tools that you can be looking at if you're a clinician out there. The Center for Effective Practice has a tool called If It Helps. That's a mnemonic, and the mnemonic guides you through a social history uh, process where you look at the identity, family and friends, income, history of trauma, housing, employment, legal challenges, if there are any personal safety, substances and sexual health history for this person to help guide you in appropriate social prescribing. This is well beyond just assessing for loneliness. This is a much broader perspective. It's a tool that I want you to know about because it's applicable to lots of folks out there, especially folks in family practice. Then the American Academy of Family Physicians has three great tools out there. They have, or documents maybe, they have a document that is great to read through called the Social Determinants of Health, and I'll have a link for that. They also have a social needs screening tool that you can use with patients or patients can use it themselves. Also, we'll have a link to that. And then they also have a document called an action plan that you can populate with a patient that goes through where the challenges are and where we're going to take action. Again, a little bit broad and beyond maybe just loneliness and uh, social isolation prescribing, but very useful tools all the same. And you can pick pieces in there that apply specifically to loneliness to help you through that process. UCLA also has a loneliness scale, and I will put a link to that loneliness scale in the show notes. Full disclosure, I have not used this with patients. I discovered this in researching for the podcast. I might experiment with this. I do find that it's helpful just to see the 20 questions that are on this form because it helps with knowing what are the subtleties, what are the things we want to wonder about when we're asking people questions about loneliness. For example, you're asking people to endorse how often they feel certain things. And some of these questions are, or some of these statements are, there's no one I can turn to, or I feel starved for company, or I am unhappy being so withdrawn. If you're a patient out there or you're a loved one, concerned about somebody who you think might be experiencing loneliness, it can be useful to look at something like one of these questionnaires. It can give you some insight into the types of questions that clinicians would ask, maybe the type of questions you would ask your loved one in order to get more clarity on loneliness in their lives. And if you're a clinician out there and you want to get clear on social prescribing, do read Social Prescribing, A Call to Action by Nowak and Mulligan from 2021. The link to that article is in the show notes. It's what inspired me to do this podcast, and it gives some great examples of how you might approach this challenge. And I really hope you do. I hope that clinicians out there and family members out there and people out there who might have mental health or neurological concerns who know that they're dealing with someone who's isolated or they themselves are isolated, see this as part of the health challenge that they have. See it as part of the solution, part of the treatment for the healthcare concern, or part of the way to stop it from getting worse or to slow it down is to address the loneliness in your own life or in your client or your patient's life. So to summarize today, the episode's really been about first establishing the importance of Social exposure and particularly addressing loneliness as a key to improving health outcomes for people across the board and especially for people with mental health and neurological concerns. We looked at specific examples in the world of Parkinson's disease to further highlight how important it is to stay social We know that the pandemic really gave us a viewpoint into what social isolation and loneliness can do for a variety of health problems and that the outcomes were were clear that we need to be addressing loneliness. But we knew that we needed to be addressing loneliness long before the pandemic, hence the Minister for Loneliness in the UK. And then we went through assessment, link, and follow-up the ALF approach to social prescribing and why that is really important, particularly how loneliness is most effectively addressed when we are meeting the patient's needs, their perceived needs, versus trying to tick off exposures on a list. And then we went through some tools, tools for clinicians and tools that could be used by folks out there who want to support people with loneliness or who are experiencing loneliness. So, those tools were both in the assessment and planning, and also in the link side of things, the Canada 211. Thank you for listening. I think this might be the longest podcast that I've done so far for the well nurtured brain. I really appreciate that you're here to the end, that you've listened all the way through. I really hope this was helpful and valuable to you, to your loved ones, if you're a clinician out there, to your practice. And how rewarding your work is with patients and to your patients, of course, as well. We will have another episode of the Well-Nurtured Brain hot off the press in two weeks time. Until then, be kind to your mind. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Well-Nurtured Brain. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe and share this podcast spread the word about brain health to your friends and family they'll thank you the content of this podcast is not intended as a substitute for medical advice nor should it be considered as such if something discussed today seems applicable to you please seek the assistance of an appropriately licensed healthcare professional thanks again for listening